satellite images contain vast quantities of data. By analyzing the contents of satellite images over time, we can identify trends in weather, soil, and agriculture. If we combine that data with ground-level sensors, we can gather a clearer understanding of how chemicals in the air or in the dirt map to how things look from above via satellite. Descartes Labs is a company that gathers high-dimensional data about our planet and turns it into machine learning models to be used by customers. In order to do this, the company has built out a data pipeline involving queuing systems, machine learning frameworks, and internal tools that are used to aggregate, clean, model, and measure data. Tim Kelton is a co-founder of Descartes Labs, and he joins the show to discuss the high volume of data and the distributed systems that make up the Descartes Labs infrastructure. Tim Kelton, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thanks. It's great to be here. You work at Descartes Labs, which Mm -hmm. is, I think of it as a data platform, a place where you have data being hoovered in and gathered, and it's accessible to developers that want to build on top of that data. Mm -hmm. And this data comes from sensors and satellite data and other places. Can you describe the path that a data point would take from a sensor sitting somewhere, maybe it's in a field or wherever you want to describe from, Mm -hmm. to the end user who's maybe a data scientist or an application developer? Yeah, it's kind of an exciting journey that's changing quite a bit. And in some ways, machine learning is a big part of why that's changing. We focus on what we call remote sensing. So sensors that are, you know, on satellites or aircraft or high altitude balloons, those types of things. And they're, they're measuring the Earth, and they're measuring changes that are happening on the Earth. So most people think of that as traditional satellite imagery. You're the analyst. You sit down. You look at a beautiful picture. You maybe do something on the desktop. That's how that's been for the last 40 years. What's changing is huge amounts of data never, ever get touched by anyone. And machine learning gives us the ability to build models test those models, backtest them historically, how did they do in different scenarios. So that path, part of it is the same in how the sensors work. They're usually mounted to a satellite, they're pushed out into space. Those sensors are increasingly measuring more and more different areas, not just red, green, and blue wavelengths of light. We measure things like water and moisture content, measure things like thermal and heat can measure things like global height, even things like radio frequencies. And those are, you know, being captured continuously as they're orbiting the Earth. And then as that sensor goes over, say, a ground station or something like that, that ground station will downlink and it'll send the data down to those ground stations. And often there's many, many ground stations all over the world. And that's kind of where Descartes Labs, where our workflow really starts at that time. And we kind of normalize all of that data. So whether it's taken from a NASA satellite that was launched 20 years ago and is still up there collecting data, those are pretty old sensors, but they still have a lot of value. Or whether it's something that was the European Space Agency just launched this week, we want to be able to use all of those in a normalized API and make that as easy as possible for our machine learning team to build models and fuse those different data sets together. So we, we do a lot of different processing workloads to get that data 
to that <laughs> format. Things that we have to do are like the top of the Earth's atmosphere and how that impacts the surface reflectance of the Earth, where the sun is in position to the camera and the camera's angles. We have to take all that into consideration. And then we have to get the exact geographic location and make sure those are all those pixels from all those different sensors over all those years of technology all line up exactly right. And then you still have pesky things like clouds and cloud cover that can be between the satellite and the earth and mess up the measurements. So that's all in the processing pipeline. And then we run the models. And so that's kind of a little bit more of like the machine learning modeling type frameworks. We use things like like Kuplo, there are Kuplo pipelines, those types of, of tools. And then often the output, we're not giving our end user 20 terabytes of imagery to download on their laptop and go through for the next five years. We're, we're giving them a summary of what the model actually told them, you know, things that changed in the earth. So those could be, you know, how much corn was grown in Iowa this week, you know, or how does that look this, this year versus last year? What are the water levels across the whole earth on all the reservoirs, whereas there a fire, you know, every five minutes, there might be, uh, we have a model that runs and looks for forest fires starting and things like that. How many solar panels are deployed in, say, California earth? So that's often the, the very end product of what we produce, not a set of imagery for, for an end user. So it's, it's a little different than what people think, and it's changing very quickly. And it's really because of machine learning and being able to build and test those models through those big historical archives. One reason I was excited to talk to you is, if I was completely out of work right now, I had no <laughs> idea where to start. I think something that is an emergent opportunity for engineers is the fact that these data platforms are emerging. Uh-huh. We've had, like, the cloud platforms, they've had 10 years to mature, basically. Yeah. And they're so good at this point. Like, the APIs are getting so high level. It's it's becoming yeah. less of an issue, how do you build something, and, and more of a question of what do you want to build. And obviously, one of the biggest opportunities is all these machine learning applications. Mm-hmm. It's like a bottomless well <laughs> of, mm-hmm. of applications mm-hmm. that could be built. I'm sitting on a chair right now. Machine learning was probably not used in the design of this yeah. chair. It should have been. And so that's how many opportunities there are. Unfortunately most of the the data that would be used to build these kinds of applications is siloed in companies that already have enough opportunity. Like, whoever made this chair, whether it's Ikea or whatever, I'm sure Ikea is working on machine learning stuff, but how far along are they? Probably not that far. I mean, or or they're far in one specific domain, and and it would be great if all this data was available for other people Uh to use. Why has it taken so long for these data platforms to emerge? You know, to some extent, it was the individual end user. But in your example of like IKEA, those are the types of use cases we're starting to build models. You know, you can think IKEA is making a chair, but there's all the raw materials that went into the chair way before it ever, you know, there was wood or metal or steel. And so those are the types of models that were just really, really hard to do on a laptop. You know, you couldn't build and bring that much data right there. There wasn't that many CPU cores. When I was at Los Alamos, we had access to all these big high-performance supercomputing centers with thousands and thousands of cores. But you also need all of the data right there. You often need 
test data sets that you can train and test and label for machine learning and those types of use cases. And those weren't, weren't how systems were built. So we've taken a, a view that we designed it, our data platform, just solely for machine learning workflows and optimizing for machine learning modeling time and being able to iterate as quickly as possible on models across a range of domains, not just one specific use case or one domain. And we feel like remote sensing of the earth and those types of data sets, there's just more, there's more use cases than we'll be able to make products for. And more end developers are going to have ideas that we never thought of. And they'll want some of the work we've done on these ingest processing pipelines to get that data all cleaned up and normalized. We can make them incredibly efficient and make them able to build those types of models and things we just don't have the bandwidth or, or haven't thought of ourselves or don't have customers. So I really see machine learning as kind of the the driver and being able to build and test those models really, really quickly. Maybe one example that's worth talking about is when we built our first agricultural crop models that were across the whole U.S., they pulled uh, basically imagery from every farm, every field, everywhere in the U.S. every day. And it took over a thousand model iterations to get a, a really accurate version that, that was good. And then you need to test that backwards through time. And so that was tested over 15 years of historical imagery. And so it's, it's quadrillions of pixels of imagery that have to go through those models. So you kind of need the cloud compute. You need the storage. You need the network. You need all of those things to scale right there. We've had... SafeGraph on the show. They're okay. another data company. They are also starting with location, geometric data. Why is that a good place to start as a data marketplace? Why is the the area of mapping and location data such a good place to start? Of all the, why not go into chair data, for example? Well, I don't know a whole lot about chair data, but I do know for like personal use, I use, I, I work out a lot. I have a Garmin on my mountain bike. It's measuring like all these different values. It's measuring my heart rate. It's measuring my blood and my lactate thresholds. It's measuring the altitude. It's, it's measuring all these different sensors, but it's all changing as I'm moving around. And I'm just putting on myself more and more sensors. I think more and more IoT-type sensors and more and more just activity-based sensors. And just what we care about as humans is relevant to where we are on the Earth. I don't necessarily care about traffic in New York right now because we're in San Francisco. But I do care a lot about traffic or maybe the lines at you know next to, to get in the door or things like that are very, very relevant to me right now. And I think that's going to only increase as, as sensors become easier to deploy and, and are just easier for us to have with us all the time. But then why not start with health data? Well, our background, like I myself and the founding team of Descartes, were scientists and researchers at Los Alamos National Laboratory. And so we have worked in this area of remote sensing and, and large-scale HPC. Ah. So for us, the answer is easy. We're not health physicists instead right. instead we have backgrounds in, in this area interesting yeah and i guess you know your first answer speaks to the domain expertise that's required if you have to normalize yeah. for clouds 
and the physics yeah. of how clouds yeah. affect light uh-huh. or something like that's a pretty big moat for yeah. in terms of a data platform yeah, builder. And there's not a lot of fields that parallel or or that your experience really works to cloud cover and those types of things. But one area we have a lot of our team is like astrophysicists and cosmologists. And that's kind of the same problem. They're just looking up at the sky with telescopes instead of looking down, but they have all of the same challenges. And again, that's also where they're measuring pixels. And that's kind of what we do as well. Often it's, it's not building a data platform that's really good at analyzing logs from your Apache server that's kind of what Hadoop and, and Spark and those tools were really built for and excel at. Whereas the geospatial world is, you know, very instrument specific often. You know, NASA, some of these satellites they would work on for years and years, and then these things would cost, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. And, and now they're getting more and more commoditized and they're getting to be these small, cheaper CubeSats. But a lot of the code base is very, very scientifically based you know lots of c and fortran and and most of our stuff is all python but that whole scientific code base that goes with the sensor and how the sensor was exactly calibrated and also just space has a lot of different challenges that that we don't have here on earth in terms of you know boards being fried or you can't just do diagnostics or switch something out so you know, there's a lot of scientific code that gets paired with each each sensor, and it's it's not a trivial thing to just pick up. So that's our goal is to make it so somebody that comes in with an understanding of say, you know, TensorFlow or Scikit-Learn or something like that, and wants to make a model, we extend the NumPy array, and so you just pass in like a GeoJSON of this is the location, and here's my start time, and this is the end time. And these are the wavelengths of light. Maybe I just care about infrared and return it back in a big array that I can start building and testing my model on. Hmm. And it doesn't necessarily matter. Like, you don't have to know that NASA had this weird calibration problem with this one sensor on on these years of imagery. And Hmm. and they they threw a firmware upgrade in 2006, and everything from then on is good. But before Hmm. that, it's bad. You know, it's incredibly hard for someone to just know that type of information. Hmm. As a developer, I encounter websites that are offering me tools of different types. And in terms of how I can actually acquire those tools, I think there's a spectrum. On one end of the spectrum, they've got an open API. It's quite easy to integrate with. It's quite seamless. It doesn't require me filling out a contact form. On another end of the spectrum, you have these websites where it's a boat of marketing materials and a contact us button. Uh-huh. And there's plenty of space in the gradient between those two extremes. And as as you know, as, as a data platform, I assume you have to fall somewhere in between that extreme. It can't be a free API. Like I remember using the Yelp API in college and it was free, at least to up to some rate limiting, you know, area that didn't affect me. Say what you will about Yelp's business model, their API for free consumption of location data by developers was completely open and unmercenarial. What's the ideal way to vend this stuff to developers? I can say what our our approach is, you know, a lot of our costs get around 
egressing of data and we want to make it as easy as possible to run the models and come up with you know derivative type products native in the cloud we're not building a platform for people to just download data per se more to build models and build insights on top of that and efficiently as possible and we first just built that for a large percentage of our team at our company is what we call applied science, and most of them have PhDs and backgrounds in machine learning and remote sensing. So we built all these APIs just for them, but there's more use cases than what we have time or bandwidth to do, so we've just started externalizing that. And so we have you know, tens of petabytes of data up there, so there's a lot of cost to cleaning that and calibrating that and making that. But most of the value is running those models for, for customers. And so that's what we do as a company if, if they don't know how to. If a company comes to us and say, we're not real good with remote sensing, and we kind of know machine learning, but can you help us? That, that's where we have teams of applied science scientists that you know, really do know remote sensing really well and can go really deep in that and build something fairly custom for a customer. And your other comment earlier, a lot of customers have their own data archives. And a lot of times that's really where the real value is, combining that customer's one unique piece of data that's specific to that vertical and then these big archives of remote sensing data and building those types of models that really are meaningful to them, but might not have meaning or as much meaning to other people in other industries. So, When I'm imagining the infrastructure that you would use to build this kind of data platform, I can imagine data coming in, getting queued up in something like Kafka or Google Cloud PubSub. Mm-hmm. I imagine there's some stream processing systems that are reading that data off of a queue and then writing it back to the queue after being cleaned. Perhaps that happens again and again as you do these normalizations mm-hmm. and iterations there. And then I can imagine once it's cleaned in a certain state, you kick it to a machine learning system and then eventually maybe that's doing some more cleaning and then eventually you get to this point where, okay, this data is refined enough. Can you tell me a little bit more about the workflow Mm -hmm. that goes on and some of the infrastructure tools you're using? Yeah, so you're right on the money. We use like a messaging queue. We we are heavy users of PubSub as far as, but satellite imagery is... Wait, wait, let's let's talk about that real quick. So why did you go with Google Cloud PubSub instead of like Kafka or managed Kafka like Confluent? Well, for, for us, we were originally, our first kind of queuing system that we used was a Python tool called Celery, sure. our Python library, and we used that with a Redis backend store, and that was very, very early days of GCP when we were just starting as a company, so that was 2014. So a lot of GCP that exists today didn't exist back then. I think PubSub was very, very early in 2014, but I had used Celery as a a message queuing system. And satellite imagery is not a pure streaming per se, where it's very much more of an embarrassingly parallel type problem where a lot of it's very bursty and, you know, you'll have a satellite goes over a ground station, sends down a chunk of new scenes that it's collected in the last few orbits. Then you have those, those scenes come on and that would start triggering our processing pipeline. And so those processing pipelines, the code bases can be all over the board. 
you know, European Space Agency does a lot of stuff with Java. So we might have to have some sort of a Java library that's been all tested and has lots of scientific papers around it and we know it runs. Another piece of our pipeline might be C code, or if we write it ourselves, it's usually going to be Python. So that's all gets containerized. And then we use a task queuing system. And then, then of course, things like Kubernetes gives us more efficiency and tighter bin packing for those workloads. You know, some are real big memory hogs and others are real CPU intensive. So how, how do we optimize there and, and scale those out? And then we use cloud object storage and we serve all our data is just live on object storage. We don't use like network attached storage or anything like that. And we kind of... Use CDN or something? No. Well, we have used the CDN, but, you know, you make a model for deforestation in Borneo, and I make a model for Florida for hurricanes. The cash hit ratio isn't isn't quite the same, <laughs> okay. same as, right, you know, enough. a pop star goes live with a new photo, and that gets cached all day long. So if you're training a model over and over again, you might get some benefit so the way, on the I th- cache. I think it's interesting that the, the consumption is like a file that's just sitting in an object store rather than like hitting an API. Ours is all APIs and what Oh, okay. I, I'm sorry. So the user, the end user is not like requesting a thing from a no, bucket they store. Don't have to. Downloading a big CSV or some sort of file, yeah. TensorFlow file. In, in fact, we built our own file system, a high-speed read-only file system for uh-huh. how we compress and store all the imagery. So, for example, some satellites might collect 10 or 15 different wavelengths of light, mm. you know, so... We think of RGB, you know, red, green, blue, but, you know, you might only care about the infrared parts of that sensor's scene. So instead of pulling down a four gig file and untarring it and unpacking it and all of that, instead, what our API lets you do is just call just the infrared bands over just this fraction of of the object and just pull that back. And, and return that back through the APIs. So we spent a lot of time on that early on. And because we built our kind of own metadata store and we, we processed all that imagery through, we know exactly which, you know, spectrums that's captured, exactly which, you know, the spatial boundaries of the scenes and, and exactly what's where it, all the data is. So then we can pull just the bits that are being requested back and, and expand them. Okay, sorry. So I totally took you for a loop there. So you were talking about the choice of Google Cloud PubSub, and then I think it's worth exploring, like, you know, okay, so... See, I'm doing these shows about, like, streaming, and there's, like, 50 streaming frameworks. Uh-huh. So there's, so now there's, like, five or six different queuing options to choose yeah. from. There's, like, you know, Apache Pulsar and Apache Kafka and Google Cloud PubSub and et cetera, et cetera, Kinesis. And I'm like, I can't, I can't keep all these things in my head. <laughs> and then, you know, the streaming frameworks are Spark and Storm and Flink and Heron and Dataflow. And it's like Apache Beam. And it's like, can I use Apache Beam? I know it's like an API spec. It's not actually a like yeah. streaming framework. So... Well, and we, me. we kind of built our own, to, built some, own. Okay. to some extent. I mean, there's, I mean, <laughs> there's not a pure magic solution for hmm. geospatial Why not? data. Well, oh, okay, oh. It, it, it's you know, and it gets back to all those sensor types are just so varied and different. Like, for example, one satellite we pull in is NASA's MODIS, and that that was launched in 2000. So, you know, think of what soft what your software stack looked in in 2000. 
And then we have other satellites that are going live right now, you know, and will be launched in six months or things like that. So our ingest pipelines need to be able to clean up and calibrate all of that breath. So containers work really well there. And we know, like, the amount of scenes coming in from the ground station and the scenes that need to go through these processing pipelines. Each satellite might be different sets of different processing pipelines, but to some extent, they follow the same pattern of here's the chunk of work that needs to get done. Here's the destination where that needs to go. Here's how we update all of our metadata stores to make it really quick and easy to query it. And then here's the end API that no matter what of those sensors you as a modeler are trying to build on top of, you have a uniform API to call, call that. So that's what we wanted to do for ourselves to try and build and iterate models. And we just, it was just so much time to constantly, each person have to do these types of workflows. So, so we built all these APRs for ourselves first because we couldn't really find anything that worked really well. And then now we've exposed them externally so other people can use them. But in terms of distributed streaming frameworks, are you using any of these things? Flink, Spark, Storm? No, no. Nothing. No, we use we use PubSub quite heavily, and, and then everything's kind of built around those types so of things. So you just have, like, Google Cloud, everything into Google Cloud, PubSub, and then, like, Python, just, like, reading off of that. Yeah. Or you just have listeners waiting for an event to happen, and then we'll spin up this type of worker to do these types of, hmm. of processing. So. Well, and what about, like... I mean, is anything appealing to you about any of these things, any of these streaming frameworks, or it's all just like, meh, we don't really need it? There's there's bits and pieces I mean, of Cube, that. Kubeflow, does Kubeflow use... Oh, we, yeah, they we, use we TensorFlow. We okay. use, well, what we're using is Kubeflow pipelines. So ah. we use, and we have tried... All, this is like kind of a CI, CD sort of thing for machine learning models? Yeah, a little bit. It's a directed acyclic graph processing engine. And so... Oh, okay. Uh, yeah, so... So it's like an Airflow kind of thing. Yeah. A workflow we have, manager. We've tried most of those. <laughs> we've done Airflow and... What was the one Spotify did a while back? Luigi? Luigi, yeah. And we've kind of, you know, of course we have lots of, of Bash and Shell scripts that we've had as very first generation type tools. We're doing Kubeflow. We've been working with Google quite a bit on Kubeflow pipelines for quite a while now. Awesome. And the modeling pipelines, people often it's not just the classification. There's, you know, a customer might might want you to put their information about maybe they've hand labeled a, a training set that they want you to train off of. And then maybe one step in your processing pipeline you need to parallelize out and, and scale that processing. So that pipeline is a way to capture all the software dependencies for every single stage. And then under the hood, that's using Argo to deploy Kubernetes containers. So every single stage in that directed acyclic graph. Sorry, what is Argo? Argo is a little bit of a DAG-type processing on top of Kubernetes. So okay. instead of having a language and declaring everything with a language, you can actually define some of the processing steps via actual containers. So that works great if you have this one step that's a set of Java code, and then you have some other things that are C code, and then some other steps that are Python code. Wow. And being able to assemble all of those together and then version them, and then how do you do discovery on that? So how does someone new come into your team? <laughs> yeah. And how do they find the pipeline that 
produced this result yeah. last year, or maybe you've been running it in production for two, three, four years. Some of our models now we've ran in production for many years. That's very hard. Wait, so why, why is that any different than regular old service discovery? In some ways, it's maybe not, but you think of that whole entire machine learning pipeline needs to basically get versioned. Say if I'm, right. a new, if I'm a new person who comes in and I said, oh, we did this experiment last year on, you know, trees and, and tree forest fires and detecting them. And it had these 12 processing steps and each of them had code written around them. And then each of those, those processing steps had their own set of dependencies and their own version management. And then how do this training set equals this sure. results in the model. How do I make it as easy as possible to reproduce that? In some ways, that's what Docker is doing with containers, right? They're unioning together all these file system layers together, and you say this version and this tag, and that, that rolls up and, and gives you this container runtime with all those correctly union together steps. That's kind of what this is from a processing pipeline perspective. And so how, how do you store those types of things? How does someone come in? How do they find it, that model? Maybe they just need to update the error handling or make a minor bug fix. How do they get that in? How do they run the test data set and get the test result and make sure they can run the entire processing pipeline through end-to-end? And then containers make help you with the deploy side, you know, so you don't have you know, the software dependencies that you would have with the VM. So those are... We've worked quite a bit on those types of, as our machine learning team has, has grown, that becomes more and more of a challenge. You know, how do you find the model that we're running in production here? How do we find the new experiments we're working on? Those types of problems. Does Kubeflow address data lineage? Like, no. It does not? No. Okay. So that part is outside. But you can do an object storage. You can actually do things like versioning of the objects, and then you can reference that that version of that object. So you would want to, like, map... In our case, we just reference our API. Okay. But and, I mean, and the, the data API. lineage problem I see is, like, you should be able... I mean, if you really want to go deep, you should be able to have a data set. You should be able to know the entire data set and the model that has trained on that data set and how that model has evolved over time as the data set has evolved over time. I have not seen that really solved yeah, yet. That's, that's a very hard problem, especially... But, but luckily, luckily, with like satellite data and like public sensor data for like crops and stuff, it doesn't seem like... that. This is actually one advantage I see is the kind of the geographical like satellite image. Like somebody takes a picture from a satellite to some extent that's like implicitly public information. Right. Yeah, I I mean, NASA makes most of this data publicly available. It's just sitting behind an FTP server somewhere. So it's not. Wow. So you have a problem that you're faced with. Like, say, say a forest fire happens somewhere, and you, you then say, well, I need the temporal stack of this geographic area going back. And I want to, like, model out, like, the change in, in like, fire fuel or, or tree density over the last 20 years. Now you got to start pulling all those data down, cleaning it all up. Mm. And then you start finally at the very end, you can start building and testing your model, which is probably was the idea you had at the beginning. Mm. And that was what you're really trying to do. So we're almost out of time. I know you're a distributed systems guy. What's the most acute engineering problem you're working on right now? <laughs> really, it's, you know, we're working, spending a lot of time on scaling up the reproducibility of our machine learning models, you know, and that's 
that's kind of what we started, you know, the last six months with the cupola pipelines and those types of things. And that gets to be a really hard problem to do at scale. So, you know, one of the models we were looking at running at would take a few thousand cores and we'd be running that for 33 days. So how do you test those types of models and how do you make them reproducible and then how do you get when you're running at that type of scale it's quite expensive so you're always looking for cost optimizations and i spend a lot of time on those types of problems down to the expo hall i think there's probably like eight cost cloud cost optimization (laughs) dedicated companies talk about an industry like we never would have anticipated billing 20 years ago (laughs) yeah billing it's basically like yeah we do machine learning on your cloud bills exactly there's eight of us (laughs) And we're all platinum sponsors. And that didn't exist even two years ago, right? right? Like that, but that was a really hard problem. I used to get all these CSV files that were pages and pages and pages long and throw them into BigQuery. And, oh my God. And, and, and like you laugh, but I actually did that for our cloud bill, you know? And so it's like, oh, that's, you know, worth maybe a couple hundred bucks a month or some, some fee for me never to have to deal with that so I can focus on the actually the hard problems I'm excited about that we're really trying to solve that we feel that we have an opportunity on. Hilarious. That's not always billing. <laughs> Hilarious. Okay, well, I could talk to you for a lot longer. I got to do another interview now, but really, really good talking to you, Tim. It was great to talk to you. Okay, thanks. Wow.